0: Nicole, you are uh, part of, no, is Medicating Normal, uh, is that like an organization beyond just the film or like, is it, that's the film supported by various organizations?
1: Lynn, you can answer uh, that. Medicating Normal is the film. And after hmm. the film was made, um, we added what's called an outreach team because we felt like the film has its life and it and it's a production, but there are so many other, stories, um, themes, um, experts in the field of mental health that we needed to hear from. So we sort of used the film um, for about a a little more than a year, it started with our festivals and our outreach team really to be very broad about it is about getting the film talked about. So medicating normal outreach is sort of the phase we're in right now. Um, the umbrella organization is called Periscope Foundation, and that's the nonprofit that we created to raise money for the film, but also to raise money for outreach. So, okay. "Medicating Normal" is the name of the film, and that's what we feel that's a—it's almost a brand now. So, um, that's you know why our email is at gmail.com and all that, but it's really under the umbrella of Periscope Foundation.
0: Okay, today on the podcast uh, we have uh, Nicole and and Lynn from the film "Medicating Normal." And uh, yeah, if you if the two of you, uh, Lynn, first, if you could introduce yourself, your full name, and and tell me about what you do and how this this came about, "Medicating Normal."
1: Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having us. I am Lynn Cunningham, a co-director, co-producer of the film "Medicating Normal." Um, it's a a documentary film um, about the overprescribing of psychiatric drugs and the harms caused by taking them in particular in the long-term. Um, and yeah, so my role was it, it primarily in product directing and producing, but after the film began its uh, uh, festival foray, we started, we launched into a phase of outreach um, where, uh, Nicole joined our team, and we've had oh, almost 190 community screenings um, organized with panel discussions afterwards. And this part of the film um, really is exciting because it's creating a dialogue that we want—we want experts from all aspects of the mental health experience to take part, from people with lived experience, doctors. Not just psychiatrists, but all kinds of doctors, all kinds of mental health professionals, alternative practitioners, um, all take place in these panels following the film uh, to talk about it. So, um, yeah, that's and I'm I'm very engaged, as engaged in the outreach phase as I was in the production of the film.
0: And and Nicole Nicole Lamberson, how are you involved uh, in the in the film and in the movement?
2: Yeah, so thanks Mark for having us. Um, My name's Nicole Lamberson. I actually um, trained as a physician assistant, although I'm not currently practicing. Uh, And that is because I took psychiatric medications, specifically benzodiazepines, um, sleeping pills. I took um, Adderall, Remeron, Seroquel. I was basically a classic polypharmacy case Um, And I got sick from taking them and even sicker from coming off of them. So I'm part of the, you know, lived experience um, community of taking these medications. And then um, I got involved doing marketing outreach and distribution for the film um, Medicating Normal and, you know, work alongside Lynn and the other filmmaker um, to help get the film out to the public.
0: Okay. And, and I, I watched the film and I, I really loved it. I, I think it was a really great film and um and, and you know, something that w- that will definitely affect my practice going forward of, of how I inform patients about medications that I'm prescribing and um you know things thinking more about with prescribing medications about risk versus benefit and, and going into the long-term risk, which I don't, you know, now now listening to watching the film. You can see that the the pharmaceutical companies uh, are not looking at the long term effects of these medications. They're you know picking the data that looks good for them for the short term. Uh, and, and I I think it would be great if uh, if every person who is going to a doctor who might get prescribed medication or is prescribed medication watches this. But I also think doctors shouldn't be afraid to to recommend this film to their patients. It, in fact, it maybe should even be required viewing. You know um, a doctor may say, you know, I think you might benefit from this medication. But before you take this medication, you should know about psychiatric medication in general, and how it might affect you in the short term and long term. Watch this film and come back and let me know what you think about it. And then we'll talk further. So oh,
1: yeah. I think that is such a sound uh, takeaway, Mark. And I think that's We, when we were making the film, we kept coming up with the term informed consent, and we realized that's it's for a film that's a really hard, not very interesting to put those words in a film. But it is essentially what the film is about it it is about weighing the pros and cons of, of taking any medication before. And um, Nicole can talk about it more in detail, but we open the film with a scene. Um, from a hearing up in Boston that one of our characters, Dave Cope, is taking, is testifying in. And this hearing is about, really about uh, whether or not um, informed consent is being given properly for the class of drugs knows, known as benzodiazepines. And um, it, it was really interesting to us that the pushback on it, um, on that labeling a drug and, and making sure that doctors give informed consent, the pushback was that, Uh, Doctors were afraid that these drugs would would not be available anymore or that people would be worried about taking them. And so um, but that just doesn't make sense to us. The if I if I were being presented with whether or not to take a drug, I would want to know before, you know, even if it made me a little bit hesitant, I would want to know. So Nicole can give you a follow up on what's been happening up there.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll just add that um, being part of the, there's, there's a whole community of people who are injured by psychiatric medications and benzodiazepines online. It's sort of an underground community and it exists because people feel like they have to go there for help because their doctors don't really know enough about um, these medications or how to get them off of the medication safely. So they turn to each other for information and support. And we've done surveys of. People in the community asking them, you know, about this issue of informed consent, how many of them felt like they were prepared by their prescriber at the time of prescription for, you know, all of the potential outcomes of taking the drugs long term. And overwhelmingly, um, patients report that they feel like they were not given informed consent. And had they known more information about, the true, you know, risks and potential harms of the medications, they would have never taken them or they would have looked for viable alternatives first. I I can include myself in that. I mean, I don't feel like my psychiatrist um, fully informed me and I trained as a, a PA. So people will say to me sometimes, you know, well, like you had medical training, didn't you know? And my response to that is, well, I was brand new. Uh, as a PA when I first started the medication. So I didn't know. And also we didn't have the training in school. We weren't taught about the physical dependence causing properties or the potential for severe withdrawal, um, how to get people off of medications in general um, like that. So no, um, I I think we need more training in, in medical schools. And I think patients are deserving of More information at the time of prescription, but then also on the topic of informed consent, a lot of patients say, um, I don't know that you could give informed consent because, or fully informed consent, because what happened to me when I tried getting off of these medications was so far beyond the realm of like normal human experience, or it was so torturous I don't know that a, a doctor could have ever told me that that was possible and had me truly understand what was going to happen to my, my body. So,
1: yeah, and the words, the warning words are, are intentionally simple um, so as not to scare people away from taking the drug, I, I think. Um, but the, and they do not convey like simply another member of our team often talks about the word dizzy, And, you know, you read the word dizzy on a warning label and you think, okay, all right, well, if it's really going to help with this other problem, I can handle dizziness. But the extent to which she describes the word dizzy when it as it actually happened to her, um, it it, it was so not able to stand up in a shower or being on a tightrope with high heel shoes, such extreme dizziness that um, that's another thing. The words themselves, as Nicole pointed out, do not convey actually what can be experienced.
0: Yeah, and informed consent also, when you go to a surgeon, surgeons have to give informed consent before a procedure, it's required by law. And it's usually in the form of a written form and you you read over it and you really wanna get the surgery done and, and uh, it's gonna help you in some way. And then you read uh, infection, scarring, uh, death, disability, you know, all these horrible things that can happen. And then, you you know, most people will just say, well, it, you know, it's routine. They might sign the form or they might even ask the doctor, what about all these horrible things that can happen? And the doctor will say, well, I've never really seen any of that happen, but we have to put it on the form. Um, you know, so, so I mean, even informed consent can turn into like a routine thing that people kind of gloss over and it's fine print on a form. And, um, you know, I mean, doctors, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's important to, to actually talk about it openly to, to say, you know, these are real things that can really happen to you. Um, also, these drugs are not designed, uh, I don't think, with the idea of, of tapering, you know, it's almost like an airplane with uh, landing gear that doesn't come out at the end, you know, it's like, like, we didn't really give you all the dosage levels and the any kind of a mechanism for how to come off of them, you know, maybe you have, like, like in the film, it comes up, how do you get off of Vivance? Well, maybe you pour a little bit out of the capsule, but you can't do that very precisely I mean it's just not designed for a person to come off of it ever yeah,
1: yeah. and also well, oh, Nicole the so many people report back um, who after having seen the film or beginning to be aware of these issues and the actual as you say the medication doses on on how to withdrawal vary if you go across the country from doctor to doctor to doctor they do know generally about the concept of withdrawal but some say oh you know cut it a third cut it a third others are more aware that it needs to be less cutting a less amount but um you know how to do that when the actual pill or capsule is a given size it doesn't exist in liquid form. Um, at, at one point, we did not put this into the film, but um, our character Angie was was literally counting the beads inside the capsule to be able to to taper by taking three, four, five beads out every time she dropped a dose. I mean, that's just not only. I mean, I guess it is precise, but it's absurd that it doesn't exist in smaller amounts for people to taper.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing, another thing is uh, compound pharmacies can help out with this where they can create customized dosing and, and even help with the, the tapering process by by creating liquid forms that can be measured out very precisely. So, uh, you know, people interested in tapering or coming off of medication very gradually may want to uh, become familiar with their local compounding pharmacists.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. We, um, in the support communities, refer people to compounders quite a bit, Um, you know, they tend to have good information, like which doctors are actually even using them for compounding. So you may be able to even find a physician who's open to the idea of um, compounding and going uh, more slowly, just sort of in response to what Lynn said, you know, the dosages not being available and prescribers saying, you know, just reduce by whatever available dosages there are. Um, there are people in, in the withdrawal communities who are, I couldn't believe this. Um, when I showed up, I was like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe people are making mixtures. You know, they're dissolving their pills in whole milk and water and, you know, making these solutions at home, basically becoming like kitchen chemists to try to, Um, come off of this stuff. So it's really shocking what people have to, to go through. And some physicians we've found when patients go back and say, you know, I need to go much slower than the doses allow for uh, some of the doctors, like they just don't believe, or they don't understand that how, how slowly some people actually have to go. They think it's sort of like extreme or excess or, Um, you know, maybe like an indication that the the patient is quote unquote addicted to the drug because they're saying, you know, no, my body will only let me remove 5% of my current dose per month Um, as opposed to these bigger, you know, sort of arbitrary percentages that we think people should be able to go at
0: yeah and and just to be clear like what we're talking about with cutting back and depend this is physical dependence it's not addiction at all completely outside the realm of addiction although there are people who do use uh, benzodiazepines addictively it's probably a very small number of people but I, that that's something i was wondering about you know like there's there's this uh, the ashton manual that tells people here's a way of tapering very gradually off of a benzodiazepine but if a patient comes in and says well i'm addicted and i if if you give me a bottle of pills, I'm just gonna take them all in one day. I mean, how do we deal with a patient like that? Like they need to be tapered safely. Maybe that needs to be done in an inpatient facility or something.
2: Yeah, Mark, thank you for pointing out the language. That's something like, uh, is one of the things that I uh, have spent a lot of energy advocating for is people making the distinction between physical dependence and addiction, because I think it's so important Um, I think one of the reasons I was able to fall into this trap, especially with benzodiazepines is because, you know, it says on the label, uh, addict could become addicted or addictive properties, but when you're just the average person taking the medication as prescribed by your doctor, you hear the word addictive and you think that doesn't apply to me. I'm safe because I'm not abusing them. I'm taking them as prescribed. My doctor told me I need to take these and there's a whole group of people who become physically or physiologically dependent on these, which means basically just that your body neuro adapts to their chronic presence and you have uh, the potential for severe withdrawal syndrome from them. So we need to find a way to um, let the public know that you know, if you are taking these medications chronically, antidepressants too, you can become physically dependent and has nothing to do with being addicted, abusing them, or having a substance use disorder. Now onto your point about uh, people who abuse them. I can't really speak to that because most of the people in the uh, withdrawal support community that I'm a part of are uh, physically dependent. We don't have a lot of people who have substance use disorders from benzodiazepines, but I will say that I made the mistake as someone who was physically dependent on benzodiazepines of going to a detox center myself to get off of them. I had no idea that you had to taper. I didn't find the Ashton manual myself until it was much too late. And because the physician that I went to and told I'm having all these horrible adverse reactions to benzodiazepines and this other psychiatric polypharmacy, Uh, because that doctor thought I was quote unquote addicted because they didn't make the distinction between physical dependence and addiction. They, they referred me to a detox center. And I went and the results were catastrophic. I mean, I had severe, severe withdrawal. Um, I almost took my life because the symptoms were, were so intense that I wasn't sure I could bear them. I actually had to find after the fact, a physician who knew the difference between dependence and addiction, who reinstated me on a benzodiazepine and allowed me to taper. And that is what sort of saved my life. So I think the language in this space is so, so important that we know the difference and, and make the distinction and also understand that the treatment of both is completely different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. These uh, benzodiazepines are really not very addicting. The, the DEA knows this. They, they put it at schedule four, which is low abuse potential. Uh, so it really is a overwhelmingly an issue of, of physical dependence and not addiction.
2: Yeah, correct. There's actually a study I found. Um, it was from 2015, 2016, where they looked at, um, it was national surveys on drug use and health. And they, they looked at, uh, how many people in the U S were using benzodiazepines and it was 12.5%. But then they found that only, um, 2% of U S adults misused them at least once. And only 0.2% met the criteria for having a benzodiazepine use disorder. Um,
1: so it's it's rare. Yeah. <laughs> that said, I just want to point out that it, 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 it is currently uh, quite common for these pills to be available in um, at the high school level, in boarding schools, in colleges. Um, my sons are both in college and their friends have reported that, uh, you know, there's the the phenomenon of the big bowl of pills that people just dip into and you take your choice, not even knowing what it is. So it, uh, they, they are available to a very young recreationally because as Dave Cope points out in the film, they really work immediately. They work immediately and they, um, they calm you down immediately it's just these kids unknowingly are taking them uh not knowing what the consequence might be if they start taking it regularly
0: yeah yeah i mean going to going away to college is like a stressful thing to begin with and then a kid gets there and they're in parties and extreme stressful situations and then someone says well here here's some xanax and uh it, it works and it doesn't mean they got addicted to it they found that it, it solved a problem very effectively, and then they may very likely become dependent on it.
2: Yeah, yeah that's a good point. There's a physician um, by the name of Sammy Tamimi. He's a psychiatrist out of the UK, and he even warns about, you know, we, we raise so much attention about long-term use being so dangerous, but he raises the point of even short-term use can be dangerous because it can open the door sometimes to a long-term prescription.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and now the film. I, I was trying to keep track of all the drugs that were that were mentioned, and I might have. I was making a list. I may have missed some, and I think some of these were were all mentioned by one person early in the film. But uh, I got Effexor, Cymbalta, Geodon, Abilify, Prozac, Zoloft, Vyvanse, Adderall, Adderall, Xanax, uh, and there may have been more. And I, I started looking through the the product information for each of these. Uh, every one of them uh, gives you a. a you know, mechanism of action, how they think it works, but they all start with mechanism of action as unknown. Like they they don't really know how any of these really work in the brain.
1: Yeah. And also clonopin was in there too, but um, yeah, but, but there are, if you look up, yeah, nobody knows that. And also what we found was interesting is that If you go online, they all warn about the properties of these drugs. So in many ways that the warnings are out there, they're just downplayed and not available to the actual patient during the time of prescription. Um, So if if people or their doctors would actually really dig into these this information out there, they might there there are warning signs. Um, But you're right. There's no no knowledge about how they really work.
0: Yeah, and, and the antidepressants, uh, a lot of them have, a, a lot of these medications have what they call the black box warning, which is literally a black box in the, uh, the package insert uh, or the, the page, you know, the PDF or printout you get, and, and it says, you know, may cause suicidal ideations, and I think it's children, teenagers, young adults, and I don't know what a young adult is, I'm I'm 52, almost 53, I don't know if I would still be a young adult, but it, it is, that part's kind of vague, but but yeah, these things can Cause people to become suicidal, things like Prozac and the other antidepressants.
2: Yeah. And sometimes, Mark, you know, the information we have is constantly evolving. You mentioned the black box warning. I mean, benzodiazepines, back in the 70s, people were raising, you know, flags about them. And we only just got a black box warning on benzodiazepines here in the last couple of years. and and then you mentioned too about how, you know, we don't know the true mechanism of action of the, of the drugs. And even more, we don't know what happens when you start taking them in combination with other drugs. And uh, there's so many people in the withdrawal support communities uh, that I meet who are polypharmacy patients. I mean, they start out with one and they have an adverse effect. The adverse effect is sometimes misdiagnosed as you know, quote, unquote, mental illness, um, there are more medications are added. And so you have people who wind up on these combinations of medications, which we know even less about um, what happens when you take this one with this one.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And when you look at drug interaction uh, checkers, you know, these online things where they, um, they, they check the database and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how they know that these things, you know, they will often say, And you can put together a combination of stuff that looks toxic together and it'll say no known interaction. So Yeah.
1: And then and then the well this drug you're taking is making you feel this way. And I'm speaking from personal um experience with with my family member who actually inspired the film. But this drug is is unveiling another disorder that was there all the time, but you did you didn't know about it. So therefore, let's take. This drug, in addition, which is just, it, it just defies logic. Um, and the fact that, well, case in point, if you now look on, t- on TV, you see a plethora of ads about uh, tardive dyskinesia. And, you know, we know, and Nicole can tell you more about it. And I know you know, Mark, but this is a, a side effect. Of, of antipsychotic, and yet it's being portrayed as as a, as a disorder on its own that needs to be treated with yet another drug. And um, th- that kind of thing is happening all the time.
0: Yeah. And that, that, that brings up something else I was thinking about um, uh, calling a, a lifestyle a, a disorder. Uh, and I was thinking specifically of, um, I think, shift work sleep disorder. Uh, it, it's a which is a, a, apparently a, a disease, which is really that you ha- you're working a, a bad job, a job that makes you work irregular shifts. You know, I, I, first thing I think about as a nurse, you know, a nurse being told you're gonna work the night shift now, and then two days later you're gonna work the day shift and then a 12 hour shift. And so their circadian rhythm gets, gets thrown off and they drive home and they're tired and they, they can't spend time with the family and maybe the, the husband or wife uh, or children expect them to, to be awake during the day when they just work all night and so what's the solution well here's provigil that'll make you feel like you got a full night's sleep it'll promote wakefulness and it's to treat this condition shift work sleep disorder where mm-hmm. probably the better solution would be to quit the job um, yes. and that that may not be practical for everybody but now we're calling a a lifestyle a disease
1: yeah
2: yeah i think that's why the title of the film is so perfect because it's it's we're medicating normal it's your body when you stay up all night you're going to have you know, symptoms and repercussions from doing that. Um, You know, I look at at back at why I first started my first medication, which was Xanax that got the whole ball rolling into this, you know, mess that I found myself in. And it was because I had stress at work. You know, I was fresh out of PA school. I was nervous about, um, you know, caring for patients for the first time. And so instead of, you know, just, uh, doing other things that would have helped me cope with that. I took these medications, it all backfired. I became so ill that I couldn't work anymore. Um, so in one sense, I guess it caused, or it solved the problem of work-related stress because I can't, I became so ill, I couldn't work. But in the end I had to do all the things, the coping mechanisms, like, yoga and meditation and eating healthy and exercise to cope with the severity of the withdrawal that I had from the the psychiatric medications. When, if I would have just done those things in the beginning, I would have dealt with this normal life work stress that I had, and I would have been fine.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of things that that people can do. And and it's not sometimes not easy just to push yourself to do it, like walking outside or if you if you live near near a beach, you know, walking to the ocean, waking up and going outside and, you know, in the morning sunrise, uh, sunset. I mean, there, there's, um, you know, therapy. That was something I was also thinking about. Um, uh, doctors, psychiatrists don't really do therapy. And I actually had another guest on the podcast, uh, Dr. Lois Hederer, who's um, a public uh, in public health for like 20 years in, in New York and did a lot of great things for, for New York and, and helped improving psychiatric care. Uh, but we talked about that, about how psychiatrists really can't even afford to, uh, you know, with their, their loans and their lifestyle, um, that they could see one patient an hour and see eight to 10 patients a day or whatever, but uh, they can see four times as many. They can see one every 15 minutes if they use medication instead of therapy, which sounds terrible, but, you know, where do people turn for therapy? I, I was thinking now you have these coaching people, although it doesn't have the same Uh, protection of like when you see a psychologist you know they can't your your privacy is protected but you know now maybe not everybody has the time or or the money to see a psychologist or or the ability to but you can there's all these people now you can do coaching online and if you just want someone to talk to like probably for $20 you can get someone on the phone for an hour and and just talk I mean I, I don't know if that's a solution of any kind but but yeah people need therapy they need talk therapy or even just someone to talk to and it just doesn't seem to be available now
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really, the system is, you know, set up, um, to where, you know, a lot of people, if you don't have money for something, um, like you need to pay a a coach or something like that, they use their insurance, um, you know, because they have a, a $10 copay and that's what they can afford. And they wind up, you know, in the psychiatrist's office where they're not getting the therapy, um, but when I became injured by the medications, I even found just reaching out to support groups. I mean, finding somebody who's in a similar situation as you, you don't have to obviously be in psychiatric drug withdrawal. It can just be like a divorce support group online. Um, finding other people in the same situation is, is, in my opinion, I had so much more support um, there than I, I would have even paying a
1: therapist. And Nicole, talk about because I, th- I think it's so interesting to learn about these support groups because a lot of doctors are leery of them. They think that there's misinformation out there in the support groups. I'm talking about you know uh, on a particular drug uh, support group I'm t- trying to get off or taper. And um, I think it would be interesting to know, like how do you know that you trust these people? what What actually happens in a support group online?
2: Well, I mean, of course there's, there's bad information everywhere on the internet. So you have to be discerning and be your own best health advocate for sure. And do your own research. And like we talked about earlier, you know, Mark suggested having connections with compounding pharmacists and professionals that you trust as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, for, for the most part, there are um, really great people in, in the withdrawal support communities. Some of them have been around for 10, 15, 20 years um, supporting people going through psychiatric drug withdrawal. Some of them are subject matter experts, in my opinion. I mean, they've spent years studying one particular drug. For example, if it's the Cymbalta support group, for example, they've read everything there is to read about Cymbalta and they know all the different ways to tell people to taper and what has anecdotally worked and not worked over the 10 years they've been admitting the group. Um, There's physicians in the groups i'm um, i'm a pa i'm in the groups there's a cardiologist i know who's in the benzodiazepine support groups so it's not all just um you know lay people either
0: yeah yeah the groups uh those groups and i follow a lot of these groups like on on facebook and different places and and some of them are, are very good there, there's a um a, a suboxone type support group that i love following but it's very well moderated They they keep people out that they give bad advice, you know. People saying you use the herbal kratom to, to get off of opioids or Suboxone, and um, you know, people that are going to put things that are dangerous or illegal or promoting themselves, you know, they there's moderators that that will protect the group from that. And I, I think a lot of the groups have that. They have moderators just making sure that nothing bad gets into the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, although sometimes, um, you know, one one thing that I think can be harmful to, that might be harmful to a person is to see someone else's experience, you know, someone may go through something extreme and, you know, it scares them, you know, like, like, you know, someone says, well, when I tapered off of benzodiazepines, it was horrible. And and it may have been horrible for that person. It might not be as bad for the next person. So I wouldn't want somebody to get get scared to even uh, approach it because now they've been scared by the group. So, I mean, everybody's experience may be different and um, it may not be as bad for one person as it was for another person. Yeah, that's that's a
1: good point. point. Um, well, I, and I just wanted to, to, to let you guys know that when in the, in the screening of this film all around the country, you know, very good friends who are psychiatrists, um, you know, I would present the film, its thesis, its premise, the purpose for it, and they'd say, no, that drug is a great drug. I've never had any patient ever respond negatively or have, or have had trouble coming off of it. And there, I don't, I don't disbelieve this psychiatrist. I, I feel like it, it is their reality that the patient group that they see could possibly be responding well and not have issues coming off. I just, it's almost like a self um actualizing truth for a given someone's experience, like that that doctor has people who come to him and continue coming to him because they are doing well, whereas those who may not be doing well go to a different doctor. So um, when you talk about the variation of response, I think it is very real because when we've screened the film, people react so differently given their own personal experiences and that's the challenge to say okay you had this one experience but other people have this and we need to understand that's a part of the
0: truth yeah yeah there there was someone on the film that 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 right away i recognized her and um uh dr anna lemke from from uh stanford mm-hmm. and uh and i because i remember seeing her on another podcast um the the huberman lab or huberman report with dr uh, andrew huberman also from stanford uh-huh. And um, so when I saw her, I thought, oh, I, I I caught someone because I'm pretty sure, you know, Dr. Huberman is all about uh, enhancing human experience with with supplements and medications. Although he does also talk about non-medication and non-supplement type things. But uh, I, so I ran over and watched watched that one again. I watched some of it, and then I saw she wasn't she was completely consistent with her message on on your film and in his podcast because he was pressuring her towards the end about psychedelics of you know what do you think of this psychedelic study or that one and and she was very clear that they're very small short-term studies and you know there may be some benefit but you know let, let's take it all with a grain of salt i don't remember her exact words but she was very consistent you know of not being um all in favor of it and saying that people have unrealistic expectations but some of the psychedelics i mean th- these are like the up-and-coming drugs that they're trying to get approved and you know they also have unknown effects and uh, effects on neurotransmitters you know mdma apparently causes uh, a large release of serotonin and, what is it, serotonin and uh, dopamine at the same time, which is unusual. Um, but that could be a whole new thing coming. Everybody thinks these psychedelics are going to be the, you know, the thing that's going to fix everybody. And, and, and maybe if, if you can just take one dose and it works and that's it, maybe it's safer than taking something long-term. But uh, I mean, how, like, do you have an opinion on like these other kinds of drugs, like things coming up for psychiatric treatment?
1: well uh, i think yes if if someone can have relief on a very short term basis and not be prescribed the drugs on a daily basis maybe but i think you're absolutely right so much more research needs to be done um on the on the on the health implication and i do know for a fact that it is it is the next big thing in venture capital a lot of money is being put into the psychedelics and um, you know, lots of good press about it and it, very easy. And I, and I know people who swear that it is, you know, mine, it's just the wave of the future, et cetera. But I, given our whole experience with medicating normal, I would just pause, pause, pause on that and be very leery and take it slowly and do more research, demand more research and regulation and regulation.
0: Oh, yeah. As soon as money starts going and things like marijuana is suddenly now it's not a gateway drug. It used to be a gateway drug. And now you can't even find anybody calling it a gateway drug anymore, where clearly it is. Um, You know, anytime these things become big business, everything changes. And uh, yeah, you have to be careful. I mean, if psychedelics are so great, um, why is it that every patient I treat for addiction tried them when they were younger? Why were they not cured back then when they were taking tons of them? And I, and I know that they're now saying, you know, it's got to be regulated, taken with therapy and done in a certain way, but, but yeah, there is no magic bullet. None of these are going to, you know, solve a person, all of a person's problems overnight.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you look back at the history of medications, we've just sort of repeated the same mistake over and over and over again, you know, it was like the, bar- the barbiturates and then they were bad and then the benzodiazepines and then they were bad And then, oh, but the antidepressants, we're going to market those as safe and non-addictive. And now we find that they cause physiologic dependence and withdrawal. And maybe the psychedelics is going to be the next thing, you know, down the pipe. I just feel like after my experience of taking these medications and, um, you know, looking for the Band-Aid fix that wound up actually being the thing that destroyed me and caused me so much suffering, um, you know, learning about my body and how to take care of myself and, um, actually getting out there and exercising and realizing how, how good you can feel when you do that eating. Right. I mean, when I changed my diet and cleaned it up and and read all I could about, uh, the best ways to eat, I stopped biting my fingernails for the first time in my entire life because I started taking care of myself. So for me, I just feel like uh, I know lives are busy and and we want something fast, but there's it, it's not free. You know, there's a cost.
0: Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, t- taking a long walk. I mean, is very therapeutic, and it, we we should all be walking more. That that's definitely a good thing. Um, so I, one thing I felt with the film, I kind of felt it, in some ways it was, maybe it was a little unfair to doctors, but probably because I'm a doctor. Um, yeah, <laughs> two, two doctors were uh, kind of attacked for. Um, you know, I mean, not attacked, but like shown as being, um, you know, not really understanding. One was shown as being very uncaring towards the patient. Although I could, I could see his point of view, but I, I think the way he presented it was wrong and um, really no, no empathy or caring of, of what the patient is going through. Um, but but doctors are not that far removed from patients. I mean, we we don't know all that much more. Some of our patients know a lot more than we do about certain topics and. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've kind of felt like maybe the real villain here is is the, the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies need to talk about that, about how they, they cherry pick the data they, they push away the data that doesn't support them and in some ways it's, it's criminal what they do with the data and they. Um, you know, really, really control the message and, and to some degree control all of medical education and, and doctors uh, and healthcare providers in general uh, there's a lot of gaslighting going on in medical education you know, we'll go to a convention one year. Uh, I mean, just just for example, there there was a time when we went to conventions and they would yell at us about how it's criminal to not treat pain with opioids. Then 10, 20 years later, it's criminal to treat pain with opioids. And, and, and I think we're going to come back around to the opposite again soon. Um, and, you know, we're sitting there thinking, wait, didn't just, I, I know 10 years ago, there was a guy up on that same stage telling me the opposite. And now he's threatening me that I'm going to lose my license if I do the opposite. Of what he told me ten years ago. And if you bring it up, you know, you're not. We're not supposed to question authority. You know, we're supposed to, um, you know, just listen to the experts, listen to the authorities, and the authorities are controlled by by these billion dollar companies.
1: Yeah. What's so interesting about that um, is that we did have when one of the early screenings of the film, we had a bunch of top psych- psychiatric professionals, there were some psychiatrists, there were some regular doctors in to take a peek at one of the rough cuts. And um, needless to say, they did not like the film because I do think that it it, it maybe is not, un, it's not that it's unfair. It's just that to tell this part of the story, we needed our patients to convey their experiences. And so their doctors played a role. Um, but this group of about 10 mental health care professional doctor looking at the rough cut, I turned it off. There was a long silence. And I said, what did you guys think? And someone said, "Uh, that was terrible. Um, And I said, I was, my heart was pounding because I didn't want them to hate the film. I wanted it to open their minds. And I said, okay, why did you think it was terrible? And their immediate response was, you, can make, you, could, you could have made 20 different films on this very topic, and this very broad film doesn't, you know, it doesn't get it at, the, at the truths that these 20 films could. And that is true, but you're talking about introducing something to the general public. You kind of have to do a basic 101 overview of this perspective. Um, but I did say to the group, well, okay, of those 20 films, which film would you guys do? And they all almost in, in unison said, oh, the pharmaceutical corruption for sure. And so it, it is doctors are aware of it. And um, but then, I, you know, I didn't want to get on and argue. I wanted these this group to feel part of the solution. But my question then was, if everybody in that room was aware of the pharmaceutical corruption and they are the professionals using the product of this corruption, then why can't they what you know Anyway, that's where it ends for me is that if everyone is aware of it then why aren't we doing something about it
0: yeah yeah i I saw an interview with this doctor uh, his name was dr john abramson the uh, author of overdosed america the broken promise of american medicine in the interview he talked about the extreme corruption of the pharmaceutical company and he he was mostly talking about things that are not psychiatric medications like he talked a lot about cases with VIOX and, I think, Lipitor, you know, cholesterol medication, uh, pain medicine, uh, probably, you know, but, but it was the same issue. The fact that uh, no one really has access to the real data. It, it's completely controlled by, by these billion-dollar companies, and we don't really know anything until there's, uh, until there's a disaster that the drug gets released, and then the real study is when the public takes it, and we find out that they're dangerous. And, and even then, you know, apparently it's hard to get, get to the, the heart of what really happened.
1: Yeah and I think I think why can't and this is what I mean, it's so super simple but why can't the people testing or the organizations actually funding the trials that are testing for safety and efficacy be removed from those who are actually profiting that to me is where the conflict of interest inherently takes place and you can't blame um, a company that is wanting to put a drug to market, you can't blame them for wanting that trial or trying to get the trial to make their drug look favorable. I mean, they're in business, but if we could somehow separate the funding of the trials from those who are actually profiting from the yeah. sales.
0: Yeah, it's a conflict of interest the way it's set up right now. Yep. Um, and, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I
2: I just wanted to add a sort of like someone who had my foot in both doors, you know, a PA who saw patients and also a patient who took these medications, I think you know, like you guys are talking about doctors and prescribers are certainly victims, you know, of the system. I remember when I was working, I would get notices like your average time, you know, spent with the patients this month was 12 minutes and we'd like you to get it down to eight. So they're under immense pressure, you know, to work fast Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: um, prescribing a drug happens in eight minutes easily. But when I was on the patient side, the thing for me that was sort of unforgivable was, um, and and what I see in the support groups too, patients reporting that when we come to the the doctor and we say I'm having this horrific withdrawal syndrome, um, it's the being disbelieved. Even times where I would print out the Ashton manual or I would take papers about how benzodiazepines or antidepressants could cause withdrawal, I would be turned away or disbelieved or told that doesn't happen. So, you know, yes, it's unfair to to vilify the doctors f- for the state of affairs. Um, but I think when it comes to not being open-minded about what can happen when you try to come off of these drugs, you know, all you have to do is listen to the patients. They'll tell you what's happening to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, there's a, a huge issue with doctors um, not trusting patients, you know, especially in addiction treatment. And even though lying can be part of addiction, it's, it's not always. And often the patients are being completely honest. I mean, there, there's a huge issue with also with patients who go to the hospital and, and their medications are messed with very quickly. You know, they're taken away and patient goes into withdrawal and it's seen as a psychiatric issue. And the patient then gets they may have gone in the hospital for something completely unrelated to anything uh, psychiatric. Now, uh, and so, so now they suddenly find themselves being transferred to the psych ward. You know, maybe a patient went in for, you know, they had chest pain and so they're being evaluated for that. And, but then someone took them off their, their benzodiazepine or their pain medication, and they go into withdrawal, And it's like, oh, look, we have an addiction problem or we have a psychiatric problem, let's transfer them to the, the psych ward. And it, it becomes a, a disaster. Um, almost like a, a circus of misunderstanding and uh, all because, you know, the patient tried to tell the doctor, well, I need this medication. You can't just take it away. And the doctor saying, well, you're, you're addicted, you know, um, th- there's just a, so yeah, doctors should listen to patients very carefully. That, that's an important thing. And it doesn't take that long to listen and to not always distrust everything you hear and to to think, think things over and think, you know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I need to go do a little research and, and, look into what they're talking about
2: yeah absolutely
1: yeah and i think and we've come across many many great doctors psychiatrists who do listen and um it's really important to note that our film is not trying to villainize the doctor because i i feel like we've come up they're in our film anna lemke um you know just the humbleness or the humility of being able to say I realized I was harming my patients takes a huge it's it just takes a lot and um uh, the, the those doctors are all over and and open to this to the ideas in the film and so um really important that Mark you point out that they're it's and 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 it does cause defensiveness and we try to allay that by bringing in people with divergent viewpoints into the discussion along so that people can hear from people with lived experience on the panel. And we want that dialogue to happen more um, because I just think it takes, as you say, listening.
0: Yeah, I, I was wondering specifically like with the, those two doctors I was thinking about, there was a, the doctor with the, the vivance where he talked about cutting by a third and, and that that looked like a, you know, a camera, a, a camera person went in with with fancy equipment, and and the and I imagine the doctor was agreeable to being filmed, and you know I I don't know if he felt bad about it later. I, I mean, and then the other doctor it was like an undercover camera, and his voice was altered and it was blurred out. So I would imagine he didn't agree to be in the film. Um, what are the yep. details of that? Like, how did that work out?
1: Yeah. So um, the second one, when when the doctor was blurred out, um, that was was a hidden camera that Shalimar war when she went back to you know ask him about her situation she was she was afraid and felt he would not take her if 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 he knew the extent for questioning um what happened after that is when we saw that when we reviewed that footage we thought to ourselves this guy is actually i mean as you noted his delivery was not very sensitive to her but in many ways he was more honest to her um than many of the other uh psychiatrists who deny that there's any kind of a problem at least he compared to what what she was going through with you know withdrawal from crack and cocaine you know at least he used them in the same sentence and we thought well maybe you know maybe we and we did we took our footage and went and made an appointment to see him and explained the whole film explained the scene showed him the scene And uh, he was, you know, not happy. I wouldn't say the word happy, but he did not get mad. And he said, yeah. And it shocked me when I came from Russia. Actually, he was from Russia and he came over in the 1970s. It shocked me how easy it is to actually be prescribing these drugs over here, because where I come from, you can't. And um, uh, and then we said, we know you are very sort of honest in a weird way. Maybe you should have warned her, but would you be willing to talk about this if we came back and interviewed you and, you know, talk about how you prescribe these drugs? And um, he said, let me think about it. And then a day later, he called me, said, no, I don't think it would make me look very good. Please disguise the footage to the extent that no one knows it's me. So that's the story behind that doctor. And, um, you know, I think doctors, uh, he, I think that th- this is what happened to Shalimar, who had, as you s- described earlier, the shift sleep disorder. Um, I think that's happening all over the country. So we thought it was really important to include. And um, it would have been better had he had he then come on and allowed us to show it in its full non blurred state. But that was him. And yeah, the other.
0: Sorry.
1: Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, in The Other Doctor, um, uh, we have not reached back to him, and that's bad on us, but we didn't feel that scene was necessarily that unfair because Brie, who is married to Dave, who's one of the characters in the film, she is not horrifically harmed by having taken her vivance. You know, she wanted to get off. It's difficult to get off, but um, it, did that doctor cause her huge harm? Did she actually feel that those drugs helped her through a phase of her life? Yes. Um, so I think that, again, is just a typical scene with someone. Um, now, what we wanted to put that scene in because his um, assumptions and directions on how to taper were so different than, than um, what other people recommend. So that scene shows how varied um, the knowledge is out there about how to taper.
0: Yes, yeah he, yeah, he presented uh he, he was saying instead of um Vyvanse maybe we could switch to Adderall because it's more potent to overcome the tolerance but he also could have said you know maybe Adderall was the right decision but for another reason because it uh, is short acting and comes in multiple you know more dosage options so maybe it it just like you know similar to the Ashton manual method uh it, maybe that would be a, a a way of tapering switch over to something it has more options to cut down to smaller tablets or, you know, I'm not sure if it would work that way, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there may have been ways to explore that of finding better ways rather than, you know, counting beads out of a capsule.
2: Yeah. Mark, they do that for um, antidepressants a lot. What, what you're describing called bridging a lot of times they'll uh, bridge people over to Prozac because it comes in different forms and better doses and that kind of thing. But, Sometimes people report that, uh, and maybe it's because they're, you know, the drugs are not exactly identical, they're similar, and uh, some people, when they switch, they'll go into withdrawal anyways, because they're they're taking a, a new drug and not the same old one that their body is adjusted to, but other people switch, and they do fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's interesting, you know, just the idea that doctors should consider, you know, maybe if we try it this way, maybe even look for... Um, uh, other, I mean, that, that would be great if there was a community of doctors discussing these things of like, how are you doing it? You know, maybe maybe I can try it this way or that way. Or, you know, having that discussion amongst professionals of different ways to help patients taper. Like when you have a, a an antidepressant that only comes in a few different strains and you don't know exactly how can I help the patient do this gradually. And maybe there's other doctors that have that information. Yeah, oh, it's
1: yeah. such a great idea.
2: We, uh, I, I also do some work at uh, a nonprofit called Intercompass Initiative, and we have a, a um, grassroots project called the Withdrawal Project, and we're actually developing something right now like that, where we're going to open it up and invite professionals to come and have those discussions with each other.
0: Okay, oh, that sounds great. I mean, just for example, um, I, I have a patient that wants to come off of uh, Lyrica, and Lyrica comes in, I think. 25, 50 and 75 milligrams. And so there's not a lot of, you know, what do you, I mean, just as an example, what might you uh, hypothetically tell someone because uh, now you have these, I think they're capsules. I don't think they're, um, you can't break them. So uh, basically the the lowest dosage option you have is a 25 milligram.
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in the withdrawal support communities, there are people who I know with gabapentin they, um, they'll open the the capsule, which has powder inside of it. I'm not sure I'd have to go look about Lyrica, you know, what form it comes in or whatever, but they make their own, um, liquid mixture with water. I know that makes a lot of, um, you know, practicing physicians nervous. They don't like the patients, you know, making these, these things at home. And, um, but anecdotally it's successful for, for lots of people and it's a means to an end and they get off the medication. I mean, compounding pharmacies always, uh, I think safer and better and doctors feel better about it, but there are people making their own mixtures at home and and having success with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's true that compound pharmacies are often not covered by insurance and they, they can be expensive,
1: but I could also see where Mark could not tell a patient to do that you know I could see that doctors well I don't know could you t- you could not I don't think given
0: yeah, that it- yeah I mean it's it, it's a um, it, it's a difficult topic because it's not if it's not in the literature now we're you know we're going into uh, off-label territory and and things that yeah it, I, I don't know that you absolutely can't because we do have uh, you know a lot of leeway in what we're allowed to do uh, of doing things off-label but but yeah, I mean, you, you need to be careful. I would have to think like, is that really gonna work? I mean, I, I've never tried it. Would it really distribute evenly? Uh, you know, I wouldn't want someone to to mix it with water. And then, you know, uh, I mean, we have to assume also that everybody doing this is a, as clear thinking as we are and that, that they're gonna properly shake it up every time. Same could be an issue with the compound. So there's there's that danger of that they, they're, they're measuring out the liquid but not shaking it and, and letting it settle. And how do I know that it's, it's gonna mix properly with water? What if it settles and now they get a toxic dose at the end because they, at the end, they have that concentrated amount at the bottom. So so yeah, it, it could be risky. I mean, we have to be very careful in, in what patient we talk to and, and have some confidence that there's not, not too much risk with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, that's some of the things that we spend time in the group supporting one another with is, a lot of people, they don't know how to do the math of figuring tapers out. They don't know how to read a syringe. So even if you're using a compounded liquid, for example, you have to use a syringe and you have to know how to read it, what the markings mean and how to keep track of what you're doing and calculate, you know, milligrams per milliliter. That's not like common um, knowledge for most people. So there is some handholding yeah. that is involved.
0: Yeah.
1: Cool. I- oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, case in point, Dave Cope, a subject in the film uh, trying to describe to his wife how he would have her come off her it's, it's It takes an MIT um, brilliant math student to be able to arc that, what you know, the change, the incremental change that needs to occur if proper tapering. You know, it's not just tapering 10%, it's tapering 10% of the existing dose. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that yeah. would be difficult for me to figure
0: out. I, I was thinking of that. I was, I was remembering his graph and, and how it, it dropped quickly and then leveled off. And, and you could see the dosages were all like to, to three decimal points or whatever. It, it was. Um, but you could p- potentially hand it over to a compound pharmacist, and then they don't have to make it a liquid where you measure with a syringe. They could make capsules. And maybe the compound pharmacist could even say, you know, this is what you get this week, and this is what you get next week. And, and they could handle the, the complex math for a patient and all the patient has to think about is like, here's my capsule for this week and next week he'll make me the right one at the next level down. So so there are other, other possibilities like that.
2: Yeah, that's true, Mark. And I know you, um, you do a lot of benzodiazepine tapering. There's also some drugs that come in a liquid and they're pretty concentrated. Um, but if you read in the Um, you know, patient information pamphlet that comes with it, it says in there, you can mix this liquid, you can further dilute it with water, juice, you know, it it tells you the substances you can use. And so people can adjust the milligram per milliliter ratio of the manufacturer liquid even further to make it more dilute and um, easier to taper as well.
0: Oh, that's, that's good. That's definitely good to know that, you know, especially if the manufacturer uh, supports it, um, one issue that we have with, with tapering people off of uh, suboxone, you know, suboxone typically comes in a film, like a little rectangular strip, and um, it actually says in the uh, the FDA-approved literature, uh, do not cut it at all. Like, and I think the reason behind that is that when people start manipulating the thing, cutting it with scissors, that they're engaging in a, addictive behavior. Now, you know, now they're obsessing over the drug. Um, and they even actually say it should be a single once-a-day dose, and, and that doesn't seem to work for people. It works more effectively if it's split in, into morning and night. But the thing about cutting it, uh, and, and I don't know where I read this, but... you know, the... oh, Sorry,
1: sorry. Sorry about that.
0: But, but apparently, so, oh, no problem. So apparently the Suboxone film, if you cut it in half, say you have like an 8-milligram film and you cut it in half, that you'll reliably get 4 milligrams on each side. But if you start cutting it in smaller pieces, then um, the medication may not be evenly distributed uh, throughout it. So so now, and I had one patient that was at one point, he was tapering and he was measuring with a ruler to measuring millimeters on, on the film. And I and I told him that, I warned him that that once you start cutting it in smaller pieces, uh, you, you. and I did offer a compound pharmacy, he wanted to use the prescribed medication for his tapering. Um, and that medication is really not designed for people to ever come off of because even the lower dose the two milligram is is way too much to stop taking it at um but uh but yeah i mean there's these issues that these things are again back to that that they they haven't really designed these things to for people to taper
2: yeah and you don't know even how evenly distributed the medication is in a pill you know they say i guess there is some literature if the drug is scored, you know, it's safe to split or you can research the drug itself and find out if it's safe to split. But anything beyond the score, you don't even know if you're cutting it into four pieces, if the drug is evenly distributed in into those four or eight or however many you're trying to get it
1: into. And what about extended release? Is that a, a weird, is that an imperfect what happens in, an, in a pill that has, it has extended well, release? Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. That's, that's interesting because you have different types of extended release. Um, you have, uh, you know, some of these, I, I think like Adderall XR is, and, and a lot, I think there's other medications and they may use the same patented delivery system um, that, that there are little beads inside the, the capsule and the, and they can actually be poured out on like applesauce. You know, if you have a patient who's older and they, they can't, I don't know why an older patient who can only eat applesauce would need Adderall, but Um, the, the actual little cap, little tiny beads, maybe they're called spaniels. I don't remember, but those little tiny beads that you pour out and vivance might be the same way, but, but it's a time release bead. So the beads themselves are the time release mechanism. So you can distribute it and, and count out those beads and, and not take all of them at once. But then you have some things that are in a shell, you know, it's like a time release shell and, and it might even be designed not to be, I mean, this isn't really a great example, but, uh, that, that's how OxyContin worked. Um, it, it was like a laser drilled tablet that was not meant to ever be broken and all the medication was inside. And then later they, they made an abuse deterrent where they made it very difficult. Like if you broke it, it was like in a gel matrix inside. But there are some non-opioid, non-controlled medications that use those kind of things where it's a like tablet that's not meant to ever be broken and it has like drilled holes in it that release the medication gradually. So there's all different, you know, you'd have to know which medication to, to know how to overcome, if, if it's even safe to overcome the time release or like in, the, in those capsules with the little beads in them, they're, they're actually made to to, to break open like to, like I said to pour an applesauce or whatever
2: hmm. yeah but it, it that I mean even that comes back to where we started talking about informed consent like if somebody would have told me in the beginning <laughs> this is what you're going to be facing when you decide to come off of this stuff like this drug doesn't even come in a form that's taperable you know it's something to think about
0: yeah, oh, yeah that, that's definitely uh, important. I, I wanted to just bring up also the fact that uh, if anybody's listening to this and they go to my website, they're like, well, you know, you're an addiction doctor, you're, surpri- you're, you're prescribing Suboxone to all these people, and Suboxone, which the medication is buprenorphine, is the um, active ingredient, and it definitely has these issues that there's um, a very strong element of, of physical dependence, and, and it can be difficult to taper, much more difficult for some people, some people will get what they call post-acute withdrawal syndrome after they stop taking it, where they may have reoccurring withdrawal symptoms coming back you know, over, over sometimes even like a, up to a year, uh, depending on the patient. Um, but, but it is a matter of balancing um, the, the risk versus benefit. You know like when you have a person who is at high risk for overdosing on, on heroin or fentanyl in the streets um, or, or living and surviving and, and having a, qual- a higher quality of life. I mean, and probably with all these medications, yeah, you, you have to take that into consideration that some people will benefit from short term and in, in some cases maybe even long term use, and and it may be life saving for some people. Um, so even, but it is important also for me to tell people that, uh, and I do tell people that now that this, if you start this medication, it, it is going to be hard to come off of, and it's not really designed to come off of, but it maybe it, it will be life saving right now, and it is does have the highest chance of success over uh, just talk therapy or not taking the medication.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, you're giving them informed consent. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it's definitely an issue. It's a different issue because opioid withdrawal is not the same as benzodiazepine withdrawal. People have said it's, it's worse than coming off of heroin and it is definitely more dangerous than coming off of heroin.
2: Right. Because of the seizure element and, uh, all of that. What about duration? Um, I mean, I've, I am having protracted withdrawal symptoms from, um, benzodiazepines. Well, I can't say that specifically, but I suspect, um, you know, I was polypharmacy, so it could have been the combination, but, um, I detoxed in 2010 and, you know, I said, I reinstated and had to taper. So really my last exposure was 2012 and you can do the math. We're in 2022 now, and I still have protracted symptoms. Do you see that with opioids much?
0: It, it's, it's hard to say, like, when a person is addicted and say that a person takes, there's actually an interesting thing. There's a, a guest I had on recently, um, uh, he, uh, David Poses, and we don't know what happened with him. It, it's a tragic case. It, this all happened very recently. Um, he he was tweeting that he went into a, uh, a psychiatric ward and, and they treated him poorly. They took him off of his buprenorphine, which he had on my podcast had reported he's been on 16 years and has had great success with it and uh, doing very well in his career. He wrote a best-selling book. He's very happy with it, was very happy with his wife and, and three children, and they really messed with his medication in, in the psych ward and then transferred him to an addiction facility where he said he didn't belong and And then shortly after that passed away and and we don't really know what happened to him. Um, But, and not, and not to mention bring him up specifically because we really don't know what happened. That's still an evolving story. Uh, But we don't really know the long-term effects of any of these things. You know, is it the addiction? If a person relapses 10 years later, is it because the, the addiction or is it because something that the medication changed over time? I mean, even, you know, people who abuse stimulants on the streets, you know, they say that they're, There's studies, I think, that show that there's damage to the the microscopic little sacs that hold, uh, I think, maybe norepinephrine, one of the neurotransmitters, and they become leaky. Mm -hmm. And if it gets to a certain point, the the person will never be exactly the same as they were originally. So so I don't know that we really know all the stuff that happens on a microscopic level in neurons, uh, you know, long term for many of these things. And probably anything's possible. I mean, uh, someone could be prescribed... Uh, you know, a low dose of Xanax, and and twenty years later, maybe they have OCD symptoms, and who knows if it was related to that? Uh, it, it's really hard to tell.
2: Yeah, I guess I didn't mean like a, a re-emergence of like anxiety twenty years later. I mean like chronic daily withdrawal symptoms that persist for years and years after cessation.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's, any anything is possible with these things because you know, like we said, we don't even know how they work. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know what changes that they're causing at a microscopic level. And everybody's different. Everyone has a different makeup and genetics and you know what it does to one person it may be completely different with what it does to another. So I, I would say anything is possible and making it almost impossible to give proper informed consent because we really just don't know everything.
1: Right, yeah. And the exit plan. We often say, just have that conversation. With your doctor, what uh, you know, they, these may I, I may, after informed consent, decide that this is the route I want to take with this prescription. But how long and what is what is your plan for helping me get off of this medication? Is that a fit? That's a fair question, don't you think?
0: Oh, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and and it may be variable. It may not be. You know, someone gives a person a prescription for a psychiatric medication. Uh, they they you may not know. You may say, "Well, you you may benefit from this for for a month or maybe a year." You know, we'll have to kind of reevaluate along the way. But but yeah, I mean, definitely, and and you, definitely the the alternatives when you say risk benefits and alternatives, the alternative shouldn't just be you have the option to not take it. I mean, there should be clear alternatives of of non medication things you can do. You can do yoga, exercise, uh, meditation. Um, you know, hypnosis, you know, it should be a long list of things not involving medication as the alternatives. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So uh, anyway, uh, so so thank you for joining me on the podcast today. it's Sorry about that. So yeah. yeah. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank yes. you for having us. It's, it's yeah. again, inspiring to know that you're out there and that you know this and that you're compassionate and. You, you know you'd be my doctor if i lived near
0: you thank you yeah, i think i think people need to know this i'm, I'm going to put this podcast on the top of my my the homepage of my website because i think people need to see this film and they need to hear this message and and have this information
2: thanks mark and we do um, interviews at um, medicating normal on our facebook and youtube and we'd love to have you as well because i'd like to i'd like to have you and feature you as a doctor who does this in real time. You have Benzo patients that you're tapering and that kind of thing. Maybe you could come on our, our uh,
1: interview series and talk about that.
0: Oh, that, that would be great, thank you.
1: Yeah, sure. You but, know, uh, one question I didn't ask you, which I wanted to, but um, was what, and I know this is hard to answer, but in the world of addiction and recovery, um, mostly for um, you know, illicit drug use, how what percentage of 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 that group of people are actually taken off of or weaned off of the illicit drug and then put on um psychiatric drugs like just just general what would your ballpark percentage not not you but in general
0: uh, are you saying someone addicted to street drugs and then they get put on psychiatric drugs after
1: yeah how how common is that
0: well i think there's an assumption that a lot of people who are using street drugs are are very likely um Self medicating a, a psychiatric issue, and yes. um, you know, and and then the idea is like, okay, we'll send them to a psychiatrist after they get off the the illegal drugs and and put them on you know something legal to to treat them. You know, maybe they were self treating bipolar disorder or something. That that's something I was thinking about. You know, when, when uh, that woman at the beginning mentioned all those different drugs, including Abilify, um, which it seems to be a pretty good drug for for bipolar. But yeah, people with bipolar disorder. Uh, committing suicide and are and having really difficult lives because of their manic episodes. And and it seems like medications really help them. And, uh, you know, but I guess, you know, you're always gonna have people that are helped a lot by them or, or not. Um, but the addiction issue, that, that's something, you know, people go into these institutions where they call them dual diagnosis. And they have, um, uh, you know, they have two, you know, they say they have addiction and they have uh, whatever other uh, psychiatric disorders. And I know part of that's for billing. But yeah, they um it's probably a lot. I don't know the exact percentage, but it's probably a lot. And I do have a lot of patients that they they come to me for the opiate addiction or alcohol. Um, and they go to a psychiatrist also for whatever else that they get.
1: Right, 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 right. Yeah, and
0: it's that, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not know. unusual for it's not unusual for one of my patients to be on an antidepressant that prescribed by another doctor, and even some of them are on. I don't prescribe any Adderall. I don't do any schedule two drugs at all, but some of them are, are on uh, Adderall and, and even benzos. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it's not my place to take them off of it, but I, I have recently, be- because of my awareness of this, I've been talking to people about it that you might wanna start considering tapering, even if it's over a very long period of time, but just to introduce the subject to them.
2: Yeah, Lynn, when I went to that detox center, I mean, that was my whole, I said, I went off of all of this stuff, but they, they removed the ones they deemed quote unquote addictive or the scheduled drugs. And then they, they kept me on the ones they deemed non-addictive and even added more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I got off the stuff myself when I got out of that place, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're taught to think these things are like uh completely safe and, and easy. Like, um, in fact, the SSRIs are the ones that, like they, um, you know, they, they make them seem like these are the primary care drugs. You know, if you're going to treat depression, if 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 a patient needs like a more complex mix of like older things like tricyclic antidepressants, send them to the psychiatrist that understands how to prescribe them. But we can always start out with um, Paxil or whatever, Lexapro, Prozac, Zoloft. You know, those are supposed to be like the easy ones that the primary care doctors and practitioners can can handle.
1: Wow, so interesting. I hope you guys talk about that in the Facebook Live interview.
2: Yeah, Mark, I'll shoot you an email and maybe we can pick a a day and time or something to do
0: that. Okay, yeah, that that sounds good. Thank you.
2: Okay, great.
0: Okay, yeah, thanks again. And I'll let you know when when I have this all, all ready to go.
2: Yeah, sure. Send a link over and we'll advertise it on our end.
0: Okay, okay, great. Thank you.
2: Okay. It was great meeting you. And thanks for being one of the good guys out there. Anyways, we have somebody we can refer patients to you in Florida anyways.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, you know, there's another one. I I was thinking even of mentioning this at the podcast. There's this psychiatrist called free range psychiatry. And I think she's in Florida. I don't know much about her, but she seems like a good person in that area.
2: Yeah. Kendra Campbell. I think she's been on our Q and a, we had her as a guest already.
0: Yeah. I don't know where I met her, but I follow her on Instagram. So yeah, but uh, she posts all kinds of stuff about, she doesn't believe in medication and helping people get off the medication. She's
2: wonderful. She's wonderful. I think she's actually RV traveling in an RV with her family. Now. I'm not sure she's in Florida anymore, but I'd have to check. Oh,
0: uh, There's another one who was on my podcast early on um, in uh, Manhattan. She's uh, Anna, Anna Usum, Dr. Anna Usum. And she, she, Says she barely prescribes any medication, but mostly does talk therapy and spiritual therapy. And she wrote a book called The, the Science of Spirituality that's full of exercises that patients can do, spiritual exercises. And she wrote, said she wrote the book for, for doctors to read, to have things that they can do with their patients that are non-medical, no, no medications.
1: Wow, that's great. I think that idea, Mark, that you came up with, of getting, getting a group of doctors together to talk about this, to share... I think it's an incredible idea. I mean, InterCompass too, Nicole, you guys are doing that, but I think that is-
2: No, 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 we're developing the platform to allow the doctors to communicate with each other.
1: I I think that's such a great idea and it's exciting. And um, just because doctors need support from one another in this. And they, I think don't have it. Clearly they don't have it through the medical school experience or even the ongoing education experience. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. If you'd like to join that, Mark, when we get it up,
2: it's, it's in the final phases. So probably another month or so, and then you can, I'll shoot you an email how to join.
0: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I definitely want to join.
2: Yeah. We're going to have like the key players in there that we have good relationships with. So like Mark Horowitz, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he does tons of research on tapering and withdrawal uh, from all kinds of different psych meds. I mean, we'll pr- probably even invite, you know, Anna Lemke and all the big names in the community. So at least we'll have doctors who are super knowledgeable in there to get it started.
1: Is it a one-time event, Nicole, or is it supposed to be sort of a no, it's a platform for communication. So, so- have email or no. yeah.
2: it'll yeah. be um sort of like Facebook, only it's private. So it's like a room post and say, like, "Ah, here's a case study, I have this patient, blah, 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 and then everyone in there is only the people who will see your post, they're members, and they can respond to you.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I I just joined this one community of doctors, and might might even be good to bring this up and share this interview with them, and and the topic, Um, it's called, I think it's called, it's called NewScript, and in fact, the one of the doctors, Dr. Tom, he was on, on my podcast also, and it, it's mainly just to help doctors get out of the abusive uh, careers that they're in and find side jobs and work on developing their own practices. And and that's, I mean, this is like an opportunity for doctors that want to do that, to, uh, to create a practice built around um, educating patients properly and treating them properly without just doing the quick, easy fix. So yeah, I'll definitely bring it up in that group also.
2: Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much.
0: So, okay. okay. All again. right.
2: Thanks. All right. Well, have a great rest of the weekend, weekend, everybody. Yeah. You oh, too.
0: yeah, you too. Thank you.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Take care. Thanks Bye.
0: Bye.